Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Liar! He's so full of shit. You, you can't see it over the radio, but Nancy Pelosi and I are staring you down. <laughs> you can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, or you can listen to us streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Hello, everyone. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. I felt a rush saying liar. It's almost like I, I didn't even have to engage your arguments. I could just call you a liar. And it, this, is how, nice? this is how Republicans feel. I, yeah. I kind of like it. That's why they're happier. We're going to start off this week with a, a correction slash apology <laughs> slash uh, my Moment of shame. Yeah, moment of shame. On the previous episode, episode 51, Don't Fear the Reaper, and this is – I don't take full credit for this failure. Um, as part of our Stranger Than Fiction last week, we were talking about um, churches uh, fighting it out over a tornado that had struck one church and, and the other church that was calling God's wrath on them. And, and, and Jeremy, I believe you casually mentioned the um, sign war between the Catholics and the Episcopalians, I think, um, uh, about all dogs go to heaven. Yes, yes. This is a cautionary tale for other podcasters Absolutely. out there about um, changing your outline at the very last minute. That's right. And I went, oh, yeah, that's awesome because um, my wife had sent that to me and uh, this is so funny, blah, blah, blah. So I went, I printed it out and I brought it in and, and read that. And I believe I even started out the conversation about that saying, now this is real. Yes, uh, you said this is this real. This is not made up with a church sign generator. You even said that. And I was wrong. I was very, very wrong. Um, and usually anything like that, I snopes, my wife, same way. And it was one of those things where I just wanted to believe so badly. <laughs> um, well, it was funny. And when you see something humorous like that that's completely plausible, of course, you're uh, – you know. You're not going to have to pass a huge threshold, and it also wasn't um, wasn't anything condemning anyone. It was just a funny little story, so it seemed plausible. That was that was a skepticism fail. Um, yeah, we immediately got feedback from our listeners. Thank you guys for holding us accountable. Absolutely, I think this is actually a plug for uh, for this type of thing because when you see things that don't make sense and a listener points them out, we actually admit our mistake. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> but I th we've done I, this before, I've too. I've never been wrong. But when Dave admits his mistake, I think that's a really beautiful thing. But uh, I do applaud the, the listeners for being more skeptical about this than I was. Um, and although I, I think it's a – it brings up an interesting topic. We were talking about this before we started recording is that we should intentionally do that sometime and throw out a story or a website and say, is this fact or fiction? And let the uh, skepticism of our 
listeners kick in and see if they can determine uh, what's real and what's not. I kind of just thought that's what we're always doing when you're talking, Dave. <laughs> Fletcher well, Factor you, Fiction. We had, we had <laughs> long ago discussed doing a Fletcher Factor Fiction segment, like when I will say so- things like John McCain is older than the chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> right, right. Which is fact, by the way. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's uh, my deepest apologies. And thanks, listeners, for jumping on that. Now we can stop talking about it. Okay, we get it. <laughs> And regardless, uh, one place where you can go and berate us for our slips of the tongue Mm -hmm. and sometimes intentional misinformation is our new forum. We now have a forum um, at doubtcast.forummotion, and that's forum plus motion with only one M, dot net. Join in the discussion there, and uh, there's some good – discussion going there already. I've been impressed with how many people have gotten on and, and are chatting away about different and issues. And are already arguing about vegetarianism. <laughs> yeah, there's no free will thread to my knowledge yet. I threw out vegetarian ones so that on people could uh, start um, eating each other alive, as it were. But it's been great watching some of the responses and everybody introducing themselves, and yeah. I just I feel all warm and fuzzy getting to hear from some of our listeners for yeah, the first Yeah, and it's time. a really nice way for, for listeners to engage with each other. Join the forum and uh, have the discussion, doubtcast.forummotion.net. The one bad thing is that I have learned um, by reading posts on the forum that apparently I pronounce doubt wrong. People think I say doot. We may have to acknowledge that we have accents. See, except we have a Midwest accent, which is widely accepted by the mass media as the correct accent here in America. Oh, sure, sure. It's picture broadcasters from the, you know, I'm from Nebraska, Jeremy's from Illinois. This is the the heart of America. That's right. And they will actually, like Peter Jennings, who is a Canadian, was trained to speak with a Midwest accent when he... um, Howdy, y'all. You know, I don't don't hear them saying fur a whole lot on the news instead of for. That's just lazy. But I hear that a whole lot on our podcast. you hear it more and more because, man, news is getting so informal. Anyway, we've digressed hugely. Let's get right into it because we have a big show today. We've got a Skeptic Sunday School Everyone's favorite. Of More. epic proportions. Absolutely. More God Thinks Like You from our very own Dr. Professor. And a back-to-school shit list extravaganza. So let's get right into it. Jeremy, Skeptic Sunday School. Well, this Skeptic School is also a counter-apologetics. It's hard to separate the two sometimes. That is true. As far as an argument for the divine inspiration of the scriptures... Let me ask you guys if you've ever heard this. This is from Josh McDowell in his book, Answers to Tough Questions That Skeptics Ask About the Christian Faith. Mm -hmm. He says, One reason that the Bible is different from other books is it is a unity. Although this book was composed by men, its unity betrays the hand of the Almighty. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years by more than 40 different human authors, These authors came from a great variety of backgrounds. The biblical writings were composed on three different continents and in three different languages. The contents of the Bible deal with many controversial subjects, yet the Bible is a unity. From beginning to end, there's one unfolding story of God's plan of salvation for mankind. Now, Mm -hmm. the immediate thing that pops into my mind is why, let's suppose some sort of text shows a unity in its thematic content and like the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, a unity there. Christ- some of those are Christopher Marlowe. 
They're, none of them are Christopher Marlowe. They're Christopher Marlowe. Christopher Marlowe was a hack. In their thematic content, in their agreeing on uh, what are the facts, would the unity of a text ever suggest that it was somehow created by a divine hand? No. Well, uh, let me uh, let me back that up. I guess if there's if it's coming from three different continents, it's written over the span of how many hundreds of years. Uh, on the face of it, it it sounds like a fairly compelling argument. It might be impressive you all of these different if you were cultures. to find that kind of unity. Yeah. Yes, McDowell's claim is here's another portion from that book. Lest anyone think this isn't something marvelous. We'd like to give you this challenge. Find 10 people from your local area who have a similar educational background, all speak the same language, and are all from basically the same culture. Then separate them and ask them to write their opinion on only one controversial subject, such as the meaning of life. When they have finished, compare the conclusions of these 10 writers. Do they agree with each other? Of course not. But the Bible did not consist of merely 10 authors, but 40. It was not written in one generation, but over 1,500 years. And yet, the Bible is a unity. There's complete harmony, which cannot be explained by coincidence or collusion. The unity of the Bible is a strong argument in favor of its divine inspiration. That, that is the kind of argument that I remember hearing as, as a child and that sort of thing. And now, hearing that, it's funny and kind of embarrassing to me that, that this book is published and people take that kind of statement seriously. Right. And I've, uh, I've encountered people before, uh, graduates from seminaries that I've gotten into discussions with who I think are very intelligent people, people who are familiar with the Bible and are familiar with criticism of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And they somehow they buy into this. But there's also people who provide impassioned arguments for why it's not a unity, but in a planned way that they'll say dispensationalism or that God changed for these reasons. And what's interesting is that you have the same people that say, well, it's a unified message that seem to say, well, of course, it's it's because God changed his covenant with people and blah, right. blah, blah. Right. How can right. you have it both ways in that case? Well, and McDowell himself in this book, Answers to Tough Questions, engages in a lot of harmonizing work, pages and pages of mm-hmm. pages of him trying to clear up apparent inconsistencies. If that's not an acknowledgement of disunity, disharmony in the passage, I don't know what is. But since this is something that many people find persuasive, I thought for a special two-part Skeptic Sunday School, we would take this argument on. Let's look at the Bible and let's see if it's a complete harmony, as McDowell says, which cannot be explained by coincidence or collusion. Mm. Collusion? Yeah. Yeah. What did like Matt look over Luke's shoulder and say? Oh, hey, mate, what are you writing there? Nothing. No, but Matt and Luke did look over Mark's shoulder. Yeah, this is true, as discussed in previous episodes. Well, for this episode, we are going to cover the Old Testament, uh, but we will follow up in episode fifty-three with a look at the New Testament. Isn't that a pejorative term? Shouldn't we refer to it as the Hebrew Bible? Thank you, Luke. I'm sorry for not being culturally aware. Yes, the Hebrew Bible. Is that pejorative or? Well, imagine if you're a Jew and some Christian comes along. Hey, you guys read the Old Testament. You haven't got but, the new one. I believe the term we use in class is it's a confessional term. All right. Well, turning our attention to the Hebrew Bible, you can't get out of the first two chapters of the Torah without seeing 
major disharmony between the two different accounts. I'm sure people are familiar with this, but there are two different creation accounts. It's actually remarkable how few people are familiar with this, even among skeptics. And Now, I teach Genesis 1, 2, 3 in my mythology class. At, mm-hmm. at first day of class, actually, just to say, look, this is how, this is how myth is created, um, you know, and to get them thinking um, outside the box and that sort of thing. And they are blown away. I ask my students to say, okay, what, what's the creation story in Genesis? And they will tell this harmonized version of the two stories. Mm-hmm. And then we actually look at it and they go, wait a second. That, that's not what it says. This is in Genesis 1, mm-hmm. chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4 is going to be the first creation account. The second account then is Genesis chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 4, the second clause of that verse, going through chapter 3. But the first thing that's that's obvious is that the, the order of the two different creation accounts are completely different. It's in the first Genesis account that you get the typical days, right? The, the Demarca- seven-day creation. That's right. Yep. God on the first day creates light. Then he creates a firmament. Then eventually he creates dry land and plants. Mm-hmm. Then finally the sun and the moon, and many have pointed out, you know, the sun and moon it's come after light. pretty tricky to have light. days without having right. the sun and the moon, or at least the sun. Then sea animals and birds. Mm -hmm. Then you get your land animals. And the thing that creepeth, (laughs) which is my favorite part. And finally, you get human beings, Mm -hmm. both male and female, you know, at the the pinnacle of creation, the, the very last thing made. Man and woman, he created them both. In the second creation account, you get a completely different order. First of all, we're not starting off with just water. In the first creation account, God's God's spirit moved across the face of the waters. The whole world is this kind of primeval, um, yes, watery chaos. Um, You don't get that. You just get reference to earth. Mm -hmm. Adam is formed as the very first act of creation. He's formed out of the dust. Right. There are seeds in the ground, but they're not yet plants. God uses his sprinkler system to make the plants grow. That's a right. mist rises from the earth. And the next thing, yes, the next very thing after Adam is created is then water enters into the scene. Mm-hmm. We don't start with water. Water springs, streams that water the whole earth spring up. And so it's really the reverse of what you would find in the first creation account. It's only then that you get plants after water, after dry land has already been established. It's only then that you get animals because uh God decides Adam is too lonely and he needs a helper for him. Right. But he does not find an helpmeet amongst all the animals. No, he doesn't find a mate that's suitable to hang out with or to mate with. And uh, then you get Eve, kind of almost as an afterthought, the last part of creation. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole Adam's rib story and, mm-hmm. and all of that. So completely different order. It's virtually impossible to harmonize these. Not that people don't try. Uh, for example, Josh McDowell, uh, his, one of his answers to this is that in, in the Hebrew where it says on the sixth day or on the fifth day, mm-hmm. um, that what that, if you look at the tense of the Hebrew word, what that implies is that he basically says it should be translated by the sixth day. Or by the fifth day. Oh, I see. So in other words, when it says on the sixth day God created human beings, um, what it really means is by the sixth day, meaning any time between the first (laughs) and sixth day, God created human beings. So the order – you know, these days are just thrown in there according to him, you would think, just for no reason at all. They're just, you know, 
arbitrary. So that's how he tries to make it all work out. Well, that's a big stretch. It's not just that the order is different in these accounts. There are different themes, Mm -hmm. even different nuances of language that are used in each account. For example, um, in the first Genesis account, you only have the word Elohim, kind of the general word for God being used. Isn't that plural? Well, it's... Elohims? They say Elohim to be a class of thing like angels or whatever are really? gods. Are yes, it's Elohim. like small g god. Yeah, it's huh. a class of being. So it could more be like the gods are creating. Mm, could be. Huh. Interesting. In the second Genesis account, you have Yahweh, God's proper name, um, or sometimes it's Yahweh Elohim, the two names combined. Mm-hmm. But you notice in the first Genesis account, uh, the creation is divided into specific days. You're not going to get any mention of days or periods of time in the second. Nope. The creation has a very cosmic scope. You know, we're talking about the stars mm-hmm. and the sun and the moon. On the second account, we're just focused on Earth. And then, of course, the methods God used are different. Uh, notice that God, in the first account, commands by just verbal commands. It's all language. Yes, he speaks yep. something and it becomes reality. Um, whereas the second account, God is much more human-like. He has to fashion right. Adam out of material. He builds kind of like a human being would. Yeah. He's, it's not uh, creation ex nihilo. So right off the bat, barely even getting into the book, we notice that there's some major disharmonies, disagreements on how exactly that creation story should go. Now, this was noticed years ago because don't they didn't the uh, Jewish tradition develop explanations for these things like Lilith? Lilith, yeah. And, that's and how and to explain that he had a wife. Okay, they're both true, but he had a wife before that's not around anymore. I, is the way they right. try to get yeah. Around. The, 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 the first Mishnah. Genesis story when he creates man and woman together, it's Adam and Lilith. And some Jewish tradition even has the serpent right. is Lilith rather than Satan, which is a totally. Um, Later yeah. manufacturing. In, in Jewish folklore, which eventually becomes preserved in, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, mm-hmm. we do get a recognition that these stories don't seem to really match up and some sort of rationale as to why. Michelangelo has even a picture of the tree, uh, the serpent wrapped around it is the uh, is a woman. Is a woman, yeah. Uh, and that there's so there's actually pictorial representations of the mm-hmm. myth where, where uh, Lilith is the bad woman. Well, if she was the bad one, what, Eve was no better. Well, she started that... Female rock festival, that's that's why. Her and Sarah McLaughlin are the temptresses. That's right. So Jewish rabbis noticed this. Medieval scholars even noticed this. Mm -hmm. And then when we start getting to those those badass German textual scholars in the 18 and 1900s, they started noticing this. And more importantly, they started noticing this is not the only case in the Torah that we have of duplicate stories. Mm -hmm. Duplicate stories with something that is different, something that has changed. They even have a name, doublets. Yes, doublets. If there are triplets, could we call it the Torah, Torah, Torah? Oh, dear. There are triplets, actually, of certain stories. But yes, doublets is the term that they usually use for when we have different variants of a text uh, of of a story. Um, Some of the classic examples are the whole wife-sister motif that you'll find with uh, Abraham, Abraham has to argue that his half-sister is also his wife or, mm-hmm. or tries to conceal that rather, sorry. Abraham's dealings with uh, Hagar and Ishmael are repeated twice in Genesis. Um, there's, there's a controversy at one of the shrines in Beersheba that is duplicated twice. Um, once we get outside of the Torah, 
you actually continue seeing these different doublets repeated over and over again. There's two different stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, one where right. uh, no homosexuality is implied at all. You have several different versions of the whole David and Goliath tale. The, the, the original is in 1 Samuel 17, but there's all sorts of doublets as to how, how was it that David – uh, was actually chosen and recognized by Saul. How was he anointed? Right. Um, but but what's great is that David and, and Goliath story in Second Samuel. It's Elhanan who slays Goliath, not David, not David. Wow! And he's in he's in David's army. David's already a general at this point. Oh wow! So there's not even agreement as to exactly who stuff? it was. Yeah. How- well, and then First Chronicles recognizes this as a problem and tries to go back and actually change that and says, okay, well, no, Elhanan didn't actually slay Goliath. He slayed the brother of Goliath and that so last guy even just within the Bible them. itself, there are apologists trying to explain the other oh, passages of the Bible? Absolutely. Absolutely. In Amazing. Fact, it's part of that uh, – part of those variations. You know, if, if you wanted to get into a knockdown, drag out argument about contradictions in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. the place to go is compare First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles because those are – Those whole, are back-to-back. Yeah, those are duplicate books right. that are describing the same event and they get detail after detail wrong. And these aren't things that Christian apologists can harmonize very easily because we're talking about like how many – how many chariots did he have? Right. What are the numbers of men in their army? What are the dates of the reign of a certain king? But and, numbers and of dates and all of that, that can be mistaken. That can be, which then, of course, speaks to the non-divine nature of the, of the beast. Well, exactly. To be nitpicky, showing these different variations, the claim that they're making is that it's such a strong harmony right. that it betrays the hand of the divine. No, actually, when you look at all these duplicated texts and they have different variations, this is betraying the hand of just ordinary human beings, right. ordinary authors with different perspectives coming to this. And different agendas. Well, anyways, after looking at many of these duplicate stories, and this is – we're mostly talking about the Torah here. I- including Noah's Ark. Isn't there two versions of Noah's Ark? There are. They're very closely shuffled together. But if you read Noah's right. Ark, you'll see that many of the same actions are repeated in the next sentence. Mm-hmm. Noah does all sorts of things twice. You know, they seal up the ark twice. He hears a command from God to choose the animals twice. It happens over and over again. And, and the, those different accounts, the doublets, are actually shuffled together. Right. And there's also two different versions of the Ten Commandments. There's the, several different versions yeah, right. of the Ten Commandments. I mean, and, and very different. Like one of them has the... Um, do not see the goat in its mother's milk, which is not being right. displayed on uh, – There are many different accounts of, yeah. the, of the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, kind of the extended laws of right. Israel. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, but this is not nitpicky stuff. This is, this is serious big, stuff. big stories. Yeah. This affects how they worship. Yeah. Anyways, looking at these different doublets and noticing that there were different uh, themes that would go across the separate texts – Sort of like our discussion of the Gospels, we talked about how the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were systematic oftentimes. If you were to follow different variations of stories in the Gospels, you could see that this revealed a trend. Well, very much in the same way, scholars looking at the Old Testament noticed that there appears to be different sources, different documents that were redacted or edited together to make the complete body mm. of the Torah. 
and this theory is called the documentary hypothesis. It supposes that there are at least four different books. They give them the terms J, E, D, and P, and that somebody sometimes they think it's the editor of of that last volume P, the priestly source. They think someone around the time of the Babylonian exile or just after took all that material together, edited it together, and and kind of tried to put it together into a unity.、Mm-hmm. But of course, there's all these. This evidence of the disunity that's that's left clues that scholars can follow to try to tease out what are the differences in these texts, and we're not going to get too much into the themes of the different individual documents, but I do want to highlight some of the some of the major ones just so people have an idea what is the evidence for this theory.、Um, in one of the sources that's been called the J source, you consistently get the personal name for God Yahweh being used,、mm-hmm. which gets translated as as Lord. Right. If you read your English translation of the Bible and you see the Lord, and then Lord is in all capital letters, right? You know that what that's translating is that term Yahweh.、Uh, there was a tradition in Judaism that we didn't want to speak God's personal name, and so we see it printed as Lord. Is that where that habit too of of people who will write G dash D? Instead of writing、yes. God, that's that's the same kind of thing.、Mm-hmm. Just, It's just out of screwy. But one of the other sources, E, uses the more general term for God, Elohim. Now, what apologists have tried to claim is that these these are just stylistic differences, right? An author is going to use a thesaurus, right? Though I don't think they had those, but still, yeah, <laughs> you, you would have、Point、to be,、taken. of course, you would have to be really boring if you were just going to use the same word over and over again. So, if if there's any kind of poetry, there's going to be some variation. So, yeah, they use Elohim in one thing, and they use Yahweh in the other. Right. We use God small G and God big G all the time. It's like you know, you can't call Batman Batman all the time. Sometimes he's the Dark Knight. Sometimes, sure, you know, you got to mix it up. The thing is, there's other clues in this text that show that these cannot be explained away just as stylistic differences. Right. In Exodus chapter six, verses two through three, this is the first time, supposedly according to that text, that anyone ever calls God by His proper name. If you remember, this is Moses、uh, talking to the burning bush. He's trying to get God's name,、right. and God kind of dodges it for a little bit. But eventually, he says in verse two, "I am the Lord." Again, that's Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them.、Hmm. So God is saying to Moses here, none of the patriarchs. Ever heard me use this term? Essentially, Moses Moses is the first one to hear God's proper name. Right. Well, we see in Genesis four twenty six. This is back in the times of of the primeval history, where people are living hundreds of years, and we see it scattered all throughout the patriarchal narratives. Genesis four twenty six. It says, "At that time, people began to invoke the name of the Lord. They began to evoke Yahweh." In other words, there's a discrepancy as to where people began to use this term,、mm-hmm. which is evidence that these are two different texts.、Right. These are two different sources. The reason why we get this confusion is presumably not because God made a mistake and forgot about when He shared His oh, name. Oh yeah, they've been worshiping me with that name for centuries. Duh. Right. There's two different sources, and then of course is you know the different themes throughout the different sources、uh, become readily apparent. 
the Yahwist source J, which is that second Genesis account that we talked about, mm. well, in all the other fragments that we identify as being J, they seem to have the, the same thing. They have elements of fable. They have talking animals. They have these origin stories. Anthropomorphic like, God? Anthropomorphic God, of course. Um, like where God shows Moses his butt? <laughs> sure. God walks in the garden. Uh, he regrets his creation. He finds odors pleasant. He gets into arguments with people and even loses them. Again and again, you see this anthropomorphic God. That's not what you see in the authors of that first Genesis account, the priestly source. You don't see that kind of rich storytelling at all. You see a lot of direct to the point a very formulaic He made style. this, this, this. This day this. he made yep. this. This is where you get all these genealogies, and their God is very okay. transcendent. He's very universal. The E source, Elohim is used for God, but this is where all the, all the characters seem to be portrayed as prophets. Um, they, they get their revelation from dreams. They're constantly falling asleep and having revelations. Right. And so that seems to have a different theme identifiable in it too. Now, one of the sources, and, and this is interesting, is uh, the D source is the book of Deuteronomy. It's kind of taken to be its own thing. And so as, as we've been pointing out here, some, some differences in, in fact, differences in, in theme, there's also disharmony in the worship that is required of God's people in the Hebrew Bible. If you look in Deuteronomy 12, and this is also in Leviticus. In Leviticus 26, they uh, ban the use of these sacred pillars or poles in worship. And in Deuteronomy 12, they go even further. Deuteronomy 12, verses 2 through 3, says, You must demolish completely all the places where the nations whom you are about to dispossess served their gods, on the mountain heights, on the hills, under every leafy tree, break down their altars, smash their pillars, and burn their sacred poles with fire and hew down the idols of their gods. And as Deuteronomy 12 goes on, you see that the only place that the Jews are supposed to worship is in the tabernacle, the place where God's presence is. Right. And eventually that becomes the temple in Jerusalem when they build the temple to God. This is the only place where they're allowed to make sacrifice, build altars, to do any kind of worship. All these other forms of worship on the hills, under the trees, are supposed to cease. It's very different than a transcendent God who's everywhere. Well, what people have noticed is this is very strange because it's also very different from the type of worship that was practiced by the patriarchs themselves. Hmm. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right. they all follow a religion that is exactly like the thing that Deuteronomy here is, is forbidding. Right. And they even build the same types of altars. For example, Jacob, after his whole ladder vision in Genesis... Uh, he erects a stone pillar at the site of Bethel, right. and he also erects an altar, and, and, and the erect there uh, is pun intended because these stone pillars were often in Canaanite religion. They were a phallic symbol. As they are with Egyptians yeah. and throughout the world. Yes, this is yes. some form of – this is hinting at there's some form of fertility worship mm -hmm. with Yahweh, which we've discussed I think way back in episode three that Yahweh – Holy cow. Yahweh is often connected is, to bull worship. Right, as are other gods, uh, fertility gods throughout the world, Egyptian fertility god, Poseidon, who's not really a fertility god, but he's represented by the bull. 
So Jacob is building these shrines. Abraham plants a tree, what they say not to do, Mm -hmm. at Beersheba. He builds altars at Mamre, Bethel, and Ai. Well, an apologist could shoot back, well, okay, but this the patriarchs live at a time before Deuteronomy. The Deuteronomy is supposed to be given to Moses. It's, it's the part of law. the law, right. right? So we can't really hold them for a different kind of worship. But it is kind of strange that it would rebel against the very type of worship that their founders practiced. And if you look very closely in the text, you'll see from the book of Joshua all the way up to the book of Second Samuel, there are several other characters, major characters in the Bible, that seem to be completely unaware that this type of worship is off limits. So in First Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Samuel, a good guy, mm-hmm. he offers sacrifices at this other site, uh, Mitzpah, which he's not supposed to do. Elijah, of all people, Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, Builds an altar at Mount Carmel. Actually, he rebuilds one. That's in 1 Kings 18, verse 30. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the other Israelites never seem to know where they're supposed to be worshiping, what kind of gods they're supposed to be worshiping or anything else. They always seem confused. One thing that's been proposed to explain why is there this disunity in the form of worship is Deuteronomy is written pretty late. Which is funny Uh, because I was always taught that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Right. And people, of course, some – McDowell is one of them. Some apologists still maintain that Moses was the author, but that's that's ridiculous. How did he write down his own death? Right. (laughs) He writes down his own death. Well, I was told that someone else wrote that for him, but he wrote the rest. But even as as early as the Middle Ages, people were recognizing, hey, hey, look, it says – before there were any kings of Israel in this text. Well, anybody who's writing from that perspective has to be writing from the time of monarchy. I mean, it's it's just clear that Moses yeah. couldn't well, have written yeah. it. The book of Deuteronomy is supposedly found, it's discovered all of a sudden in, in a, a field crack. in upstate New York. <laughs> sort of, sort of. That's how the story would be written today, yeah. um, reference to Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. But no, it's discovered by the priests as they're renovating the temple. There's a crack <laughs> in the wall, and they discover this book of Deuteronomy, right? Well, we should have been reading this all right. along. And this What's happens that? to be— I don't know. You yeah. just put it there. No, I didn't. <laughs> this happens to be during the reign of King Josiah, who's a little kid at the time. So, Aww. yeah, isn't that cute? Yeah. So, of course, they go up to this little kid who's, who's the king, and they go, we found this book— and they seem completely surprised. They don't, they're not aware of, of any of this stuff. And in fact, they, they read into that. That's why uh, this is after the kingdom split in Israel. So okay. Israel in the north has already fallen and Judah in the south is having all these problems. And they're like, well, you know, apparently this text says uh, we're not supposed to allow worship in the hills, uh, you know, we're supposed to have it only at the temple, and we're not supposed to do this or that. This is like Dick Cheney presenting evidence for the Iraq War to George Bush. Like, here, you, oh, we just found all this no, it's stuff. Like, it's like finding another Harry Potter for the kid kings. You, know, you could say, <laughs> yeah. nobody died. Oh, well, look, look. It turns out okay. And Dumbledore is straight. So, here you go. I want a new book. Well, and Josiah and his grandfather, uh, Hezekiah, are the only kings that are ever recorded in the Bible to use their political muscle to try to force these reforms and centralize worship in Mm. Jerusalem. Uh Deuteronomy does not go back to Moses. It's written by these reform-minded priests 
it's during Josiah's reign, uh, and, and it's probably the, the priests that are their direct predecessors as well. They're reading these reforms back into the mouth of Moses. And, and that may explain, you know, why, why are all these discrepancies in the form of their worship and what's considered proper worship? And as you brought up earlier, Dave, I mean, it's, it's not just that. It's the laws. Right. The laws are different. You find them in Exodus chapters 21 through 23. You find the book of the covenant, which lays out all these laws that the Jews are supposed to follow. But you also find them in Leviticus. They, you also find them in Deuteronomy. And they all have modifications of one another. But going with the Deuteronomy theme, because we're already there, Deuteronomy makes several changes and additions to the book of the law. Just to highlight a few, there's better amnesty laws for um, forgiving debt. There's reforms on slavery. There's restrictions on what could be considered proper and warfare and how you treat prisoners of war. It restricts the power of the father and the family. You know, Now he can't disinherit his stepchildren or stone to death his insubordinate son or, or kill his sexually active daughter w- without permission of the town elders. Oh, oh okay. If he gets all those things. But before, he could just do whatever he if wanted. If he felt like it. Yeah. So it is curtailing his power. And it puts restrictions on the king. Kings are supposed to behave a certain way in Deuteronomy. They are supposed to be subordinate to the law too. Which is especially odd if this is from Moses, right? Because God only grudgingly allows the Israelites to form a monarchy, mm-hmm. and that's all the way in First and Second Samuel. So awfully strange that in the time of Moses, they're already they're preparing for kings. a monarchy yeah. and everything else. Um, holidays such as Passover are changed. Even the covenant of circumcision is, is done differently. Differently, uh, there's a different way to do it. Well, in Genesis 17, Abraham is supposed to circumcise newborn males, but there's references outside of of that and way after that that show that they're practicing adult circumcision. Right, when they take over camps yeah. and circumcise everyone, right. so they can steal I, their stuff. Have you ever noticed an entire generation coming out of the wilderness, born in the wilderness? Before they go in to conquer the Holy Land, they all get circumcised as if they've never heard of that. Well, the account of the covenant with Abraham, that's a doublet too. In one of them, there's the commandment to do circumcision, and in the other one, it's absent. Let's see, in Genesis 17 is the one that has the circumcision part. That's the priestly source. That's probably the latest of all the different texts. Rather than this being a unity... As McDowell says, the Old Testament is a complete mess, and it has been obvious to people for centuries. Any scholar, any student of the Bible, any priest or theologian has been getting headaches over trying to interpret these passages and put them all together. They've been getting headaches over this book for millennia. The idea that this is a unity just doesn't fly. But – If that's not enough to convince people, we are going to pick up this theme again in the next episode, and we'll take a look at disunities and disharmonies in the New Testament. Well, that's a cohesive piece, though, because that's new and fresh. They knew what they were doing the second time around, right? Not so much. Oh, man. All my hopes and dreams are shattered. (laughs) 
if it's as obvious as I've tried to argue that these texts are not coherent, that they are not unified, they do not show harmony, but rather a very fragmented picture of the events and beliefs and doctrines of, of the Hebrew people, why is it that people continue to see these texts as being unified? I, I mean, I, I can confess myself, one of the last arguments while I was hanging on to just shreds of faith, one of the last arguments that I would cling to is that in the time I had spent studying the Bible, it had such a complexity and an intricacy that I couldn't believe that it was just a mistake, that it was just written by human authors. So this, this appealed to me too. And so I'm wondering, you know, how could something so obvious just go over people's heads, could just be completely missed? Yeah, I never noticed that either. I mean, I think I had a pretty good Bible education too, but... Uh, yeah, but, I mean, know. I had Christian school from preschool to, to high school graduation. They either don't point it out or they prepare you, they arm you with messages as to why those things... Well, people will tell you that this isn't the same, but here's why. And those things are usually sufficient if you don't read it closely enough. So that kind of strikes at home, for I think, for a lot of us, is that how, when we were former believers, how did we swallow that at that time, if we were reasonably intelligent? But yeah, so this is one of the areas, actually, that I, that I wanted to do research on, because it's actually, you know, I guess somewhat personal, and that is that w- on what level is somebody, uh, is somebody not putting the pieces together? Do right. they simply just not even notice, or do they notice and it's suppressed, I, or something, you know, not to sound conspiratorial? It wouldn't necessarily have to be motivated, right? I mean, we have... Confirmation bias is well established in psychology that people tend to see and filter data in a way that's consistent with their theory. Yeah. That would be a cog- just a purely cognitive explanation. That is that we tend to, to smooth things over, and not notice discrepancies, not because of any emotional reason, but just because of you know memory things. So you know, the, mm. uh, for example, and there's also another bias called a source bias, where you f- this is where everybody has this experience where you you won't remember whether you've read something or whether you heard it on the radio, but you'll mm-hmm. know the content of the information. Oh sure, right. And so in that case, you're you're uh, it's not really motivated. It's just that that what you remember is the gist of something, not where it came from. So that might be, in some ways, that would explain not knowing where you read something in the Bible, but just the gist of it. You know, plus, oh, if you sure. have teachers telling you the gist of it, like, the important thing to remember is right. God is blah, blah, blah. Here's the key idea. Well, that's what I was going to say. Availability yeah. heuristic is that people people base their judgments off of whatever whatever is most readily present in their mind, right? All those yeah. things that go In against. fact, it's one thing that the, the, the related question, not with believers and non-believers, but with people of different like fundamentalists versus liberals, how could they both be looking at the same text and be coming away with, with completely different messages? Uh, and so I actually did a, did a study that came out, uh, just came out this year, but on text, on the problem with, with just relying on it in a non-controlled way is that they might actually be reading different parts of the Bible. Like maybe if you're a fundamentalist, you just dig Deuteronomy oh, sure. right. cause of all, and Leviticus, whereas you know if you're a liberal, you read Matthew 25 or something. But what I, what I did in the experiment was gave people controlled so that they, I could control what specific religious portions they were reading. And so this was in a, uh, I actually had it computerized where they had to hit the space bar to advance the next paragraph of the religious text. And what I, fo- what I thought I'd find is that the high-type fundamentalists would focus just on the judgmental, nasty bits that I showed them mm-hmm. and, that the, and that the low fundamentalists would, would forget that part. But actually it turned out that the one finding was that the high fundamentalists actually had a better recall overall for the religious messages. So probably, mm-hmm. probably because they were into religious things they when i had like bible passages come up they were they remember them better than the low fundamentals right well i would expect you know what are the churches that are going to be drilling 
their congregates and, and memorizing scripture verses and that sort of thing. The Awanas are going those to be very programs, selective. In I what, imagine what those would be more more fundamental yeah, conservative yeah. churches. Well, the thing though that stood the, that that uh, was interesting was that the high fundamentalists actually over remember stuff that wasn't there. So I put in mm. what what you call distractor sentences. Really. So like if the text was about sex in the Bible, I would put in things that aren't in the Bible but about sex, like you know you shall be condemned for sexual immorality. It wasn't in their original passage that they read, but sure. I would give them that and they would have to then say, no, I didn't see that to get the correct answer. And it turns out that the high fundamentalists were good at recognizing what was there, but they were also over-recognized stuff they that wasn't there. What wasn't. Huh. So hmm. that would be something that would uh, kind of similar to where they would see things as being in a religious context or misremember them that aren't really, were never in a religious context. So for example, a lot of people say, uh, think that the Bible says the Lord helps those who help themselves, but it doesn't say that. Right. Yeah, so, so what, what people do is that they have what in cognitive psychology you'd call a schema or a framework of information mm-hmm. and that they go through life looking for bits of information that fit in with that existing schema. So if your schema already happens to be that God is a certain way or even that you know his, the Bible is, is perfect and smooth, you're going to then look for information that appears to agree with that and then you know not even notice the information or misremember the stuff that doesn't. I actually did this in class too when I I'd give my class like a Bible fact qu- uh, quiz thing like which how many books say this and like where who said this Paul or Jesus and what I found was that again the high fundamentalists tend to score better on most of the items but on some of the items that are they have specific types of options like I have which of these did Jesus say and it's about homosexuality so I have things that are like really nasty like they should be something from Leviticus they should be you know fornicators put to death condemned. that sort of thing and yeah. then I have the correct answer which is Jesus never addressed homosexuality and then I have like an overly nice one like they shall be forgiven and what I found is that there on items like that the high fundamentalists actually did worse hmm. in the direction of selecting the judgmental passage hmm. so again in most random Bible stuff there uh, people who are more religious probably are good at training and remembering stuff like that but if it conflicts with their view and, and like in a question like that like did Jesus condemn homosexuality they misremember it as being yes he did yes, of to, course fit, he with, did to fit with everything else that's their framework yeah yeah. and actually in those cases then that the, the people who are less religious or more liberally minded remember the correct answer that he didn't address that I would think they would be more open to contradiction or, or challenging of their viewpoint more, more generally yeah right. there's, um, there's a, we've talked before on the show about, uh, about Robert Altemeyer's work with authoritarianism but he actually did some interesting stuff with biblical uh, in the context of his fundamentalist and authoritarian studies where he, he kind of, I like these type of studies because he nailed them to the wall in a successive way where he gave them a paragraph impeaching the consistency of the Gospels, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But suffice to say that they are, you know, inconsistent. Who, and he gave them the resurrection stuff. Matt says this. John says it was just Mary Magdalene. And then he tried to say what differentiated the people. And he gave them options like, okay, uh, there are no cons- inconsistencies. It's all perfect. But then he also gave them outs like, yes, there are inconsistencies, but it's because... And then mm-hmm. reasons why uh, it was mistranslated. There are four different views of the ac- of it's like an accident. You have four different views. So he allowed them to explain why they're inconsistent, but still say, yeah, but it's still God. They got to harmonize. In yeah. other words. Yeah. And, and what turned out that the difference was in a nutshell is that the people who who still said, nope, it's all perfect. It's all of a piece were higher in dogmatism. He had a scale mm-hmm. of like dogmatic belief. No, I will never change my mind. There's nothing that can change my mind. That was the. the the differentiating factor, and and uh, that's where you get into things like cognitive dissonance theory. That, mm-hmm. that it's it's difficult to maintain irreconcilable views, and but under tremendous pressure to alter one of those views, people will do almost anything. 
uh, even misremember stuff or, or change their, their, uh, their view of things to maintain that consistency. And actually what they find is that people are less likely to change their opinion when you point out they were originally, you know, said something like, but you said there it was all perfect. So there's other studies that show when you when you point out to people, look, this is what you originally said. You said that the Bible was perfect and didn't have any contradictions, and then you force them to look at the mm-hmm. contradictions. It makes them dig in even more. Uh, some people, hmm. the the more dogmatic and 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 th- they tend to be, the more they dig in even more. So in other words, it's quite possible that Josh McDowell and other Christian apologists that are trying to maintain the harmony of the Bible really do actually believe it's true. They're, they're, they may not just be trying to, to fool us intellectually. Yeah, they, um, and this is where I think you're neat because th- there's a couple studies. One study that uh, I think is interesting actually was in the context of a Bible criticism class, a higher criticism class of the type that, that you talk about. This is by a guy named Burns, I think, in 2006, where he did the biblical criticism stuff, and then and these are mostly mm-hmm. religious students, and then asked them, what do you make of this stuff that it's not consistent? And he found that there were several techniques, one of which that we just mentioned was that they, if they were allowed to, they misremembered their earlier position. That is, their earlier mm. position was, it's all perfect, it's all smooth. They actually, if he didn't point it out to them, they said, well, I never said that it all agreed. So, in other words, they could get out of the, the dissonance one way by by retroactively changing it and saying, no, I never said it was in total agreement. So that's one option. Another option is that they would s- – well, one is that in the classroom they just say you're a biased teacher. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're an atheist liberal and I'll, I'm just doing yeah. it for the grade. If you remember the original cognitive dissonance stuff, it was that if you had an external external reason to say something, you're just towing the party line. I don't have to right. change my opinion. I'm just doing this to get an A and you're wrong. Right. But I'll say you're right just to get out of here. These They'd radical textual critics and their <laughs> anti-Bible bias. <laughs> what people do that's the mo- one of the most popular things is that they've just focused on the similar parts. Like you mentioned before, confirmation bias is that you'll gather information that supports you and ignore the mm-hmm. refuting. It's much easier, in a, especially in a book like the Bible with thousands of pages, to focus on the things that are similar. And then you sure. can then say, look, you're only looking then at the numerator, not the denominator. You're saying they're similar, they're similar, they're similar. That's a feature of human nature. We typically do not look for instances that would contradict the rule. We yeah, just, we just right. do not exist. Our brains are not wired that way to look for conflicting instances. The, the, the best critical thinkers are, and, and this is what's in the scientific method, is that you look, you deliberately force yourself to poke holes in your thing and right. say, if I'm mm-hmm. wrong, right. this is what it would look like, not which things could I come up with that would to support confirm me. It, yeah. Right. That's the whole idea of falsifiability that we preach over and over and over again. And that's the difference between a legitimate scholar of the Bible and one of these apologists. Right. You look for evidence that would falsify the theory. You keep more than one hypothesis active in your mind. Yeah. The the other interesting study, I think, that shows overlap with the Bible stuff, but it's, this is in the political realm, actually came out this year, is by this uh, an author named Monica Prasad, and this was on the Bush decision to link 9-11 to the Iraq war. Mm. That is, we're going into Iraq because 9-11 happened. Right. Now, obviously, you know, even Bush himself came out and said there's no, there's no link. Yeah. The 9-11 commission didn't find a link. But what Prasad did was interesting is that she found a bunch of voters, Bush voters, and who had said earlier that she had on their questionnaire that the reason that we went to war was because of Saddam Hussein uh, uh, being responsible mm-hmm. for 9-11. And then she re-interviewed them and gave them the news clip, paper clippings that said, look, Bush himself says that it never 
there's no link between the two. Right. And the 9-11 Commission, and then watch what they did with it. And it turns out they did a very similar thing to the things that we just talked about in that, uh, that I think it was only one guy out of, a, you know, 100 people she had said, huh, well, I guess then there isn't any link. The rest of them, wow. it was all a matter of, yeah, only one guy. The rest of them, it was all a matter then of how they dealt with the contradiction to maintain their position. And, and again, what some people did was misremember their earlier thing. So there's even a funny thing in the interview where she has a transcript where she's like, you know, uh, but Bush said Saddam Hussein wasn't responsible for 9-11. The guy's like, oh, wait, I, did I say uh, Iraq? I'm in Afghanistan. Afghanistan oh, was responsible. Oh, <laughs> nice. She's like, but you put it here on Saddam Hussein. And the guy in the, in the transcript says, oh, well, you could cross that out because that's not <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean that so that wow. when people are giving it out they can misremember and say I never said that to begin with yeah mm-hmm. um, but she found actually the most popular one was the one we just mentioned and that is simply focusing on the attitude bolstering parts that are similar in the case of the Iraq war there's, like one said there's no doubt in my mind that if we didn't deal with Saddam Hussein when we did it's just a matter of time before we would have had to deal with him anyway right so and and they would add things like but he probably also had other types of weapons maybe he wasn't responsible for 9-11 but he's a bad man blah 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 yeah. so you can see there that's very similar to the big biblical people who say yeah maybe there's some differences but there's so many other things that are similar yeah. that but that all the important things. stuff is, yeah. is all the So same. that's the most popular thing. But another interesting thing she found was, ironically enough for conservatives, postmodern type opinion uh, as an excuse. That is, you have oh. your facts. Uh, yeah, so You've got your facts, I got my facts. So when the interviewer in this case said, but 9-11 Commission didn't find a link, the person in this case said, one example was, he says, well, I bet they say that the commission, they didn't have any proof of it, but I guess we can still have our opinions and feel, feel right. the way that we do, even though they say that. So I've noticed that in apologetics too. Some of the most conservative apologists also get into talking about worldview, and we just have different worldviews. Right. Everything is a comparison of worldviews, rather than believing that there's some. There may be some sort of world that we have in common that we can go to as an objective basis to confirm or disconfirm our think conclusion. These people would have more um, writing on truth. Uh, given that they believe they have the truth and uh, well, will get them into <laughs> eternal life and all of that. But instead so they're like, well, you got your opinions, I got mine. Well, because it only works as a whole, I right. think they often take it as a package. Yep. Yeah, so Prasad called that disputing <clears throat> rationality itself. That is, you're, di- you're, you're disputing the fact that rational rules should apply to things. It's just a matter of opinion. Uh, you know, and so I think that the the dangerous thing about that technique is that the person is essentially no longer bound by argumentation mm-hmm. and evidence. The main title of her article, though, was that this this technique is called inferred justification. That is, you infer backwards from the fact of here's where I am now, and then you construct a case. So in the case of the 9-11 uh, conflict, it was the inferred justification was, well, we're in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they must have been responsible for for 9/11. In other words, and this is what's so fascinating about that is that the person there is 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 kind of reasoning backwards by saying given a state of affairs, there must have been a reason for this state of affairs. So some of the respondents said for example like well Bush uh you know, he wouldn't have done it unless he had a reason to do it. Yeah, where, where there's smoke, there's fire. That's right. Well, Come see, I've, talk, I've talked before about a thing very similar to this. If you remember there, a, f- a few episodes back, we talked about my research with a just world belief. Mm-hmm. That right. is the belief that the world does function in a sense of fairness. Therefore, let's say in the case of misfortune, if something bad happens, it, God must have had a reason because the mm-hmm. world is just. Mm-hmm. That's also very similar in the fact that you're starting off with a position that things happen for a reason, the good are rewarded, the bad are punished, and then you're taking a specific instance like this guy just got hit by lightning. 
well, he must have deserved it. You can see they do that with, with the Bible, too. It is perfect. That's my starting point. Right. Therefore, if there is something that looks uh, that looks funny with the contradictions, it's an, it must be an apparent inconsistency. I've just got to go back then and construct a case to show that. Because why? Because we know the Bible's perfect. Only looks contradictory, but it's really not. Mm-hmm. And the sick thing is, is that they have schools across the nation, oftentimes Christian colleges and, and theological seminaries that train them to do those acrobatics. They make a career out of begging the question. But a lot of the times the problems even come from public schools, as we'll see on our shit list, our special back-to-school shit list. First off, the Kentucky high school football coach who loaded up his team, about 20 players, uh, in a school bus and took them off to church to be baptized. Oh, my God. This is at a public school. Dave, I don't have, really have a problem with that. As long as they're not kids aren't forced to be indoctrinated by socialist agendas by Obama. Ah, uh, yes. And this very same school, funny you should mention that. It's almost like you knew what was coming. Uh, this very <laughs> same school, when President Obama gave his address to schools, which uh, even conservatives who, who heard this speech or read the speech beforehand said, this is a pretty good speech. I mean, it's a stay in school, eat your vegetables kind of speech, right? This very school where the coach baptized his entire football team made students have to get signed permission slips in order to listen to President Obama's speech. Yeah, and it's not just the coach. Remember, the uh, superintendent of the school systems was actually present at the baptizing of these students. Really? Uh, I didn't hear that part. It's not that he let it happen. He was there in the room when it happened. Uh, She. She. Oh, she. Oh, well, sorry. I didn't mean to be sexist. Yes, so that's why Breckenridge County High School in Kentucky is on the shit list. It, it's like they weren't content just to get on for one thing. And frankly, I'm shocked that this is happening in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, aren't you, though? Uh, we have another school making the shit list, and this is in Missouri, I believe. It's the Smith Cotton High School, their marching band. The scandal that erupted when they had T-shirts made for the marching band this year, and on the and back, we of should the t- make clear it's not uh, it's not the marching band or the band director. No, 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 no. That is on the shit list. Absolutely, it's the parents and the administration of the school. Um, the marching band made shirts um, at no small cost, I think, because you know to get thirty or forty shirts printed up. And they banned the shirts because on the back of these T-shirts is a really quite innocuous, the traditional evolution of man image right. with, you know, the monkey and then the et cetera up to man. And they're all holding brass instruments. Right. And it just says brass evolution. Well, parents got all in a tizzy because this was a public school acknowledging evolution. Well. Heaven for family. <laughs> right. Which it wasn't, really, even, uh, and not that that should be a problem, but it wasn't. Uh, the band director, Brian Kloppenberg. Isn't that the name of a textual scholar? I don't know. They all have Berg or something at the end. <laughs> yeah, one of the German scholars. 
Kloppenberg said that they chose it because the the evolution term, uh, the evolution picture was recognizable. The band was doing several different pieces that would show how using brass instruments and, and music over the last century, yeah, or so. marching band music has changed. Yes, and and to highlight that that history, yes. they just used the term yeah, evolution, if which you were makes sense. Walking on the beach and you found a saxophone, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you yeah. would know that the saxophone has an intelligent designer. The va- the spit valve is just too perfect. I don't think these instruments changed on accident. This article says, though, um, while the shirts didn't directly violate the district's dress code, (laughs) duh, (laughs) assistant superintendent Brad Pollitt said complaints by parents made him take action. Quote, I made the decision to have the band members turn the shirts in after several concerned parents brought the shirts to my attention. Yeah, Sherry Melby, a parent of one of the students, said, I was just disappointed with the image on the shirt. I don't think evolution should be associated with our school. <laughs> oh, and it wow. won't be. No, it won't. It clearly will not. A- and someone else makes the comment, says, if the shirts had said brass resurrections and had a picture of <laughs> Jesus on the cross, we would have done the same thing. Big, big that's difference, people. Um, yeah. And someone else says, it's like we were saying God is bad. No, it's like you're saying I'm a moron. Yep. And Oy, and then we're not just picking on southern schools, though. No, or even just public schools. We have our very own hometown shitless nomination here. This is our good buddies over at Calvin College. If you're in the philosophy department, would they have a class called Calvin and Hobbes? Waka waka. Um, With this a picture story, of like the cross kneeling at the from oh. our very own Grand Rapids Press. Calvin College professors call for discussion about memo warning against homosexual advocacy. And the professors are on our props list. It's the administration that's on the shit list. Yeah, there's this memo saying that the Board of Trustees has looked at issues surrounding the college's position on homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And uh, according to the Grand Rapids Press, has concluded that it is unacceptable for faculty and staff to teach, write, or advocate on behalf of the issue. So they're basically sending out a gag order that nobody in their employ on campus, these professors, this is a this is a topic they cannot touch. Right. You can't write anything anything positive about homosexuality. This is this is the college of the Christian Reformed Church. Right. The CRC Church. Mm-hmm. So a major denomination that across the world. Yes. Which, which many people point out that a, a private church school with, has a right to set their own policies about issues. And absolutely they do. And I would not but argue. A right is not the same thing as the correct Right. No, and here's where I think you get into like as a as a professor, you have to, you know, uh, if you say we're a liberal arts ed- education school, yeah. is that ever in conflict with a doctrinal statement, a, a statement mm-hmm. that you have to sign saying I won't advocate for homosexuality or like you know creationism? Where is the intersection between saying we value learning, knowledge, all the liberal arts education type things, but not if they conflict with this, this, and this, and have a circumscribed area yeah, under which exactly. you can't go. And I would argue that as, you know, anybody who defends the principles behind a liberal arts education, that is inviolable. Well, if they're stunting controversy in their own movement, they're basically preventing the possibility of their, of their denomination from ever growing or changing. But that's what they want. 
Well, I, I don't think that's what everybody wants. No, it's not. I, I mean, mean Calvin, Board College, of Trustees. Calvin College kind of wants to have its cake and eat it too here because yeah. they also have this January series that they put on where mm, they bust yes. in all these scholars from different parts of the country. And, it's and quite, they, a, it's quite a good series. Oh, yeah. they really push the PR on how open-minded. Yeah. Then uh, Hershey Ali, what's her name? The I am Hershey, Hershey Ali. Ali. Yep. But they during the series, they really push the PR on how we are a different type of religious institution. We allow and encourage our students to challenge their own points of view and to grow as thinkers. If that's what they want out of their students, then they shouldn't be turning around and repressing their professors. Yeah. And my very own alma mater, Aquinas College, had a similar issue a couple of years back. That's when, right. Over when the homosexuality issue yep, also. A speaker who was going to come in and talk about how homosexuality wasn't evil. And uh, they threw up a stink and, and he was not allowed to come on campus. There was a book about a decade ago. You guys might have heard about it. The guy was a Wheaton professor, actually, Martin mm-hmm. Knoll, N-O-L-L. I, sure. I forget the title exactly, but something like the, you know, uh, his thesis was, why aren't there any uh, top tier research schools that are also Christian right. over arts educations? Right. And part of his argument was, is that, yeah, the, those things to some because extent are this. a contradiction. Yep. That you say that you value open inquiry and scientific evidence and things like teaching people to think for themselves, but as long as it's bounded it's by that. It's like saying we, that, that, you know, people have the right to free speech, but not if it's offensive. So Exactly. Yep. But props to Calvin College staff, and I'm sure it's not all of the staff. Yeah, um, for not taking this silently. Yes. And, and the fact that it's this memo has been passed shows that some of them were doing the right thing. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and I know many good Calvin this. College yeah, professors absolutely. who would absolutely stand up for gay rights or, if nothing else, at least claim that it wasn't. Well, we uh, saw at Hope College that David Meyer did that, yeah. uh, who we had in That's our right. show, that he, he one of the professors uh, was a homosexual or something, and Myers went to bat for him. And yep. Mm-hmm. So props to that, but as far as the Board of Trustees goes, yep. shame on you. We want free thought on all of our campuses, mm-hmm. religious and secular. And that's going to do it for us this week. In the meantime, continue the discussion at our new forum, doubtcast.forumotion1m.net. Send us an email at doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our blog at www.doubtcast.org. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Zazzle, etc. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time with a look at the New Testament and a special interview with Robert Price. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.